Hello and welcome to the Manifest Image. Here we look at art movements, their works, theory, and explore their relevance to artists of today. I'm Thomas Greengrass. And I'm Ariel de la Garza. This week, Sarah Stein's Notes on Matisse from 1900. So, Ariel, here we go. Have you got a little bit of an introduction about who Sarah Stein is? Yes. So, uh, Sarah Stein was a pu- friend, a close friend and pupil of Matisse's who took detailed notes during his classes. Um, in January of 1908, Matisse started a small academy that ran for a few years. Um, and particularly at the beginning, he was very, very interested in it and he would uh, obviously give classes, but also show up on Saturdays and critique students' works, which was a common practice of the academy at the time. Um, Sarah Stein was, uh, so these notes are from August, it was several months of teaching, mm-hmm. and Sarah Stein was part of the um, kind of influential group of Americans that were in Paris at the time, including Gertrude Stein, mm-hmm. uh, that was her sister-in-law. So... Uh, very interesting, so on. She became a very important art collector, uh, buying woman with a hat. Yeah. So who knows how good a painter, but definitely uh, did other things. And uh, we are grateful for those detailed notes that she took. These were published um, and edited by Alfred H. Barr, another very influential American in the dissemination of European art at the start of the previous century. He was the first director of MoMA in New York. And was a very influential, okay. yes, tastemaker of the time. Um, yeah, uh, the text is broken up in sections, isn't it? Yes. So uh, again, these are Sarah Stein's notes. She's just taking these, uh, and they're divided between subjects. So, in order, drawing, then study of the model, sculpture painting, still life, and finally criticism. And these, as you were saying, so these are part of the, the, the Saturday criticisms, and mm-hmm. these are uh, these would have been uh, remarks that were particular to, you know, particular students. Yes, so, so they are discreet. They, and they are general, but... They are wonderfully out of context. Yes. Um, yeah, so... But, they, uh, but funnily they're enough, fun, they're you can see yeah. how they relate to his, uh, to his thoughts. So um, th- these, of course, these sections do overlap... Uh, But broadly, uh, in terms of subject matter, uh, the focus is on composition and technique and Mm -hmm. purpose. Yes. And uh, because, you know, as a follow-up to uh, Notes of a Painter that we looked at last week, uh, you know, we we can see how much of it follows on and see a little bit more context about how he sees these things. And, uh, yeah, the fact that it is broken up uh, into drawing and sculpture and painting predominantly it's really very, very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and I want to uh, uh, discuss later whether you think that he thinks of drawing as a finished work or is it just practice? Because one of the things uh, that we've been discussing just personally mm. is that in a lot of art schools, they don't seem to teach uh, drawing. They don't teach how to sketch. Uh, plenty of people have seen comic books and things like that and they'll see mm-hmm. how people build up. 
But drawing has fallen out of favor with a lot of artists today. Mm-hmm. And so I think that that's, it's, you know, if, if you're there and you've always been a fan of drawing or you think maybe it's a way to increase my, my, my skill level and mm-hmm. um, uh, have, better, have a better eye and a better hand, this may be for you. Well, also, I think well, we'll we'll get into this later. But mm. as as I've always seen drawing, and as you can as you see drawing, um, hopefully it's still taught in art schools. I think it is, but maybe. But not some of them are com- like optional classes. As yeah, well. but I think those are also art schools that are just not all that into the whole painting and drawing thing in general. Um, but when you see um, exhibitions of drawing, say of like I don't know the the classics like Michelangelo and the, mm. the Renaissance. Um, you see how drawing is a is like an active thought. Mm. So as they draw, they develop and sort of visually think through compositions, through poses, through through everything, through themes. So without drawing, you really can't get to painting. You oh, know, yeah. you, you you might, but it's just not going to be the full uh, the full thought in the way that that it is if you draw. So, yeah, but why I can't think. I just throw a bucket of paint at a canvas? You certainly can. Yeah. And, and I Vers- might even call it study of male nude. Yeah, that's... There you go. Yeah, I've oh, ruined your day. Oh, Jackson Pollock. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, but I'd say that uh, one of the fundamental techniques that he uses, in, and it's fascinating to see... Uh, It's these analogies or equivalents. Mm -hmm. And you'll see this both in terms of how he thinks of line, shape, color, composition, uh, and also what he thinks about the world and how he thinks about an image that you're crafting, whether it's, uh, uh, say, a a drawing, painting, or a sculpture. Absolutely. And so uh, maybe we should actually give an example of what these equivalences and analogies, how they take shape. Um... So, and as I say, this is from everything. This is everything. So he gives a start off in, uh, in drawing. He talks of what is, what is a head. It's a ball. Mm-hmm. The actual line is, you know, the head is a ball upon which the features are delineated. But then he continues. The eyebrows are like the wings of a butterfly preparing for flight. Mm-hmm. So he really does start to breathe in uh, an additional kind of life into, into these equivalences. Um, but it will continue, um, uh, you know, he says, remember that a foot is a bridge. Mm-hmm. Uh, when the... M- uh, Legs are an amphora. Yeah. Yes. Like that. And if you're wondering what an amphora is, it's a kind of jug uh, with a with quite a, a... Greek wine jug. It is, yeah. yeah. Uh, with very spindly little handles but a, and a thin neck, but a very wide body. Mm-hmm. And so you can sort of already start to inverse, see pelvis and legs. In an the, inverse pair, if you will. An inverse pair. Very nice. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he carries on. So understanding these analogies is, is key. You could, you could actually try to you know, speak like Matisse. You could speak in Matisse's voice. You know, he says, arms are like rolls of clay, but the forearms are also like cords, for they can be twisted. Uh, uh, and so you know, he, there he's mixing analogies. He's building it up. And so you're starting to uh, get a, a sense of how he's actually conceiving of, uh, of physical dimensions. Both in a, 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 and this will, you know, as in drawing, it will also then apply to painting. But, you know, how many people start like that? Yeah, so that seems to be very important um, mm. for him. And um, I think we'll get to, to, I think, why that's so important for him, for him later on. Mm. Um, but I think it has to do with 
um, imbuing the world with poetry. Yes. And uh, seeing that and then somehow communicating it. But what's interesting also, uh, Matisse's, <coughs> sorry, pedagogy seemed to, and this is very helpfully pointed out by the, um, by the editor of the book, which is, uh, I think it's uh, writing on Matisse, right? Um, from the Matisse 1970- on art or something. Matisse yes. on art, yeah. So it's writing about Matisse and mm. so on from the 1970s. They point out how um, how many analogies to the academy of the time there are in the way that Matisse taught and mm. wanted to teach. So he seems to emphasize... Um, Similar, similar things. I mean, there's the study of the Greek and Roman sculpture, the study of the model, all of these things through drawing. And um, they mention uh, the resemblance with an academic drawing practice of the time. So uh, F. Goupil's uh, general manual of oil painting from 1877, who had this schematic approach to it, which was um, uh, to... Oh, boy... Boy, my handwriting. Um, to perceive, to be attentive, uh, compare, reason, retain, abstract, combine, and order, analyze, generalize, imagine, or invent in that order. Now, God, what a hack! Yeah, that's, <laughs> oh, God. I mean, I have, I can do that as well. I can yeah, throw in a load of words, a bunch of words and pick them out of a hat. I mean, I I can do that. I'm sure there was more to it, but no, it's <laughs> that's the book. It's actually it's actually that's interesting because although there is a similar Procedure. Well, it's not mm. exactly a procedure, but Matisse does try to break down different aspects of drawing and of conceiving mm. images and so on, which I guess is what pedagogy is. It's all very well and good if you showed up to Matisse's drawing class and he just went and drew a perfect nude and left. He'd be like, oh, thank you. That's that helped. entirely unhelpful. So you do want some kind of a, of a breaking down of the process by which one arrives at mm. that wonderful painting, right? But... There's this like fine line that I think Matisse is starting to play with of like, if it is too schematic, mm. you don't get to anywhere valuable, and also the steps seem bizarre. I mean, I don't know why it's compare, then reason, first perceive, then reason, then retain, then abstract, then analyze, then general. So uh, anyway, I don't know how one could really get to the image through this, and and I think later. Matisse gets to perhaps what the main problem with academic mm. painting and practice at the time was. But I'll leave that. Oh, what well, do you want mm. to just cover that now? Because I think I, I, you know, I was wanting to just leap in immediately into the composition and technique. But no, no, no let's a... let's let's leap into it. Let's leap into it. It, it will okay. emerge. So uh, we have to understand here uh, his, his terminology. You know, these these analogies and equivalents. But uh, one of the first things that you start to see in how he actually. Uh, wants to you know teach these uh, kids how to how to how to draw and uh, and how to conceive of their art is that everything has a decided physical character, mm. and this is also how he must conceive the natural world. Even though I think it's slightly contradictory, um, you know he says that you know the, the head is a ball. That's its shape. Mm-hmm. That's its shape. Uh, there are you know if you see things, you know. Uh, is that an egg? Uh, you know, what is an egg? Okay, it's like this kind of an oval shape. Mm-hmm. Okay, fine. Let force that shape. There are no indistinct shapes. Mm-hmm. He says, if you ever, you know, if you start to draw a head, you know, that is its own unique shape, he says, no, 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 no. 
this isn't wrong. I'd mm. rather actually you exaggerate it because that will convey its character more perfectly. But it's strange because obviously even, you know, whatever squeals that you make on a page, that will be a shape. It might not be a typical shape. Mm. Um, but yeah, he seems to want to go into more breakdowns of geometrical ones, you know. So he says, okay, fine. That's a square. That's a triangle. That's how you have to conceive of it. Um, and so I don't... Uh, what do you think of that? I mean, hearing that as a suggestion of how to start drawing... Mm-hmm. Do you think that's right? Uh, I mean, it's true that you do see people start to break up. They will do sort of an oval for the head, and mm-hmm. then they might do sort of one kind of, uh, you know, rhombus for a torso, and then another one for the core, and then they start to do break down the pelvis, and, you know... And, and in order, one of the things that he'll also say is, uh, he's very happy using lines. He says, lines shouldn't really exist on their own, but it's excellent for conveying a kind of movement. When he means says movement... That's really a kind of behavior or action or something. Mm-hmm. So let's say that um, a model, uh, a physical model, is kind of leaning slightly. Well, that lean he will call a movement. Mm-hmm. So even though it's a static image, uh, you know, it's stationary, he refers to that as movement. Today we might call that a behavior or something or a kind of action that's, you know, mm-hmm. this is how a stance is. But all of that, you know, even the curls that are hitting, you know, the, the way that curls are hitting someone's shoulders, say, mm-hmm. on their hair. That will have a, he will call that distinctive kind of, uh, you know, falling and that, that, the way that it actually sits, he would call that a movement. Mm -hmm. So he says, it's fine to do a line as a general thing and then build up your shapes around it. Again, you see the arms are like clay, but he's also aware of how things sort of move. He's got a three dimensional perspective, so they can also, uh, you know, your arms twist Mm -hmm. as well as being these sort of like, you know, uh, well, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't know if this is good advice at all. I mean, mm. I, I don't particularly draw or understand any of it. However, what I can, what we can say, and I, I, not, mm. neither of us do, but what we can say is um, uh, how this changes how we see Matisse's art and how these principles shine through in his art. I think that mm. is something we can speak to, and I think it does. It's, it's also an interesting peak. Uh, or look into his own process, yeah, um, which is very, very good. It is interesting. So what, 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 what I took away from it, mm-hmm. beyond just his insistence on geometric forms, that is part of the academic practice of the time. Yes. So there's another uh, text that they mention of a teacher that talks about how there are no convex, uh, no concave lines on mm. the human body. There are only convex, for, for instance. So things like that, right? There's like yes. geometric metaphors to like allow you to start constructing an image like that. Mm. But what I found really interesting for Matisse is how everything is constructed. How he does see that as being an important part of the image. So he says, everything must be constructed, built up of parts that make a unit, a tree like a human body, a human body like a cathedral. Yeah. Um, and he does talk about the cathedral a few times. And yeah, the buttresses of a cathedral. Yeah. He, he has these fantastic analogies between artificial objects, organic objects, you know, what you might think of as very unlike, but it seems to stimulate his imagination, um, both in terms of how, what sorts of basic geometric f- forms he'll use, mm-hmm. but then also for later on when he starts to imbue it with a kind of poetic imagination. So what I think is that it, it's not later on that he imbues it, maybe in the text, but mm. for him... It, it seems like you have to immediately imbue it mm. with that poetic imagination 
to then be able to paint it in, or, or draw it in any meaningful way, kind of. Um, and by meaningful, I mean that you put your own sensibility into it. So it has to be, I think, pretty immediate because it is different to when you see eyebrows, say, that's a butterfly. I'm drawing a butterfly in eyebrows mm. as opposed to eyebrows and then, oh, I guess I'll make them fluttery. Yeah. I think that there's a different process whereby you get it and the kind of authenticity you can get if you see it immediately. Well, see, this is why I like wonder that. whether he does think of drawing really as... Uh, a, a complete art form as opposed mm -hmm. to something that you just have to practice but really painting is your thing or mm -hmm. sculpture is the thing because by the time he gets to the painting he uh, you know uh, or rather in Sarah Stein's notes he's saying right first of all just complete it in your head mm -hmm. whatever you're painting a landscape a, a body whatever complete it in your head don't start painting yet just complete it in your head and when you do begin with colour Obviously, this is uh, he, he doesn't say this for 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 drawing. Well, he doesn't say he doesn't say complete it in your head, does he? Uh, he he says that you you uh, have to have pretty much everything. In he your says head. he says hold the subject in your head, right? Yeah, and then and then paint it. But I I think that's very important because he, I I actually think he doesn't mean complete it in your head and then bam put it on the canvas. It's he says start with color and then. There's this kind of process so, of... Decide on your general colour scheme. Mm -hmm. spots, uh, suggestions of composition. Close your eyes and visualise the picture. Then go to work. Always yes. giving these characteristics important. But absolutely. But that's, it, it's a completely different though. Because he's not saying you visualise the whole thing. Right? No, but you must indicate all at once what you have in mind for the complete work. So you don't have to have the details down, but you have to have sort of what he but what do you as the skeleton of the composition. Well, you, the skeleton of the composition, but you have, you have more, as I saw it, mm. the character of the work. So he says there, you start with a dab of color, right? Yes. And then, and then what else? Like, I, I think what we have read about Matisse so far mm -hmm. is more that that dab of color will then inform the next dab of color. Right? There's a kind of constructive process of building tension of opposites mm -hmm. um, that he's very interested in that seems to happen on the canvas. It doesn't I mean he can have an idea of what it would be like. Well, he would but he doesn't talk about it in terms of harmonies because he doesn't like the yeah, dissonances. No, but, but, but he, no, That's not dissonances, but, but opposition. He starts to get irritated with him. Mm -hmm. but, but opposition. I mean, there is opposition. Yeah. Um, and I think... But it has to resolve, ultimately. In the final composition, it has to resolve. It can't actually have a conclusion. I don't think that... I think that's what we learn from his other thoughts and from what the others say about him. Yes, and I will... And they disagree with him. I will find... But they are, they are relations of colour, right? And, yeah. And uh, in any case, it's, mm. it's con I, I want to stress that it's a constructive process, mm. a lot of which happens on the canvas, not in your head. Um, this is, that's how I see... How you see okay. what he does. A little bit like he spoke about composition, right? That in composition you, you put down a thing and then that completely changes that you know, or you change the size of the canvas and that radically changes the composition. That you put something and it would radically change where the next thing has to go. It would determine where the next thing has to go also. See, no, I'm not, I, I, I'm gonna have to I personally I, I'm not so sure. Mm -hmm. I, I think that he I will agree with you up to a point, but I think he actually has a slightly fuller thing in mind. Uh, that's not to say that he doesn't. I mean, he's, he's quite strict about it. He says, you know, you might have three different colors, then you add your fourth. If it doesn't work, put your canvas aside. 
It's no good. You have to get rid of it. Uh, start again. Um, I think he might have a slightly fuller conception already. So, so for instance, for instance, mm. order above all, put three or four touches of color that you have understood upon the canvas. Add another if you can. If you can't, set this canvas aside and begin again. Construct by relations of color, close and distant, equivalence of the relations that you see upon the model. So it, it's, uh, yeah, I think, I think there, he does have a, a, you know, you can see only so far um, and the color is, is important in that way. So I think his process of drawing is, is, is pretty alive to, I mean, to what he actually does. Mm. In the criticism section, um, he does offer suggestions. So he doesn't just go like, oh yeah, this work is, you've, you've messed up here, put it aside. He does actually say, ah, oh, I can see that you've been struggling in this particular mm -hmm. area with these two colors here. Um, so for instance, he's got one student that he is saying that you seem to have this issue with um, uh, thinking about color in one sense and light in another. And, you know, you're, you're going, uh, uh, and, um, uh, and he says, no, 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 you should only focus on another sorry, on the former, mm -hmm. uh, but a far more, uh, that was a wrong example, a far more poignant example, I believe, would actually be, he wants, uh, he talks about one student who has highlights to, uh, you know, lightness of tone to indicate um, uh, volume, essentially. Mm -hmm. So, okay, the light is hitting a thigh in a particular way, so where it hits, that will be the lightest part, and to the sides it will start to darken, and if there's anything on top of it, you go... He says, but you're using that to indicate volume. He says, actually, I think you're much better off using the background, the color of the background, to indicate the volume. Now, how on earth you use the contrast between the background color and the color of the thigh, mm -hmm. uh, the colors used to depict the thigh, to show volume versus the lightness of tone on the thing is a very curious idea. But that's, so he, he is saying that you can kind of make improvements, so certainly there. Yeah, so it's not like, he isn't actually as strict as, okay, it's, I, I now actually have to destroy it. I think in the criticism remarks, we do see that, yes, you can actually yeah, make I mean, improvements. I, 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 saw, I saw in Matisse this and the previous things we've seen a, a kind of fundamentally constructive um, approach to what he does. Um, as opposed to, I don't, I don't know, as opposed to what exactly, mm. um, but it doesn't seem as I entirely platonic as maybe other kinds of of idea than to concept, to kind of, to work, uh, uh, such a clear relation. Um, but, yeah, I saw him as kind of struggling, uh, well, struggling, but like working with shapes and so on pretty directly. Mm. Um, I still do think that he, he does have a little bit more um, of a composition in mind. But again, it can be what you called, you called it the character. I called it the sort of like a skeleton. But yeah, so just going back to the drawing, uh, because that will inform us mm -hmm. uh, uh, his, his later thought. So we've got like, a, you can have a line that indicates a sort of movement or a trajectory. So... Let's say that a flower is bending mm -hmm. at a particular uh, angle, you know. Then you're going to start off with a line, roughly, and then you're going to start to build up the shapes. Uh, and you're going to, you know, pick the closest shape. And mm -hmm. he's happy. Um, and it, it, this is where it gets really fascinating, because uh, he thinks that how you have to actually look at it, you have to break down... He begins with the body. Mm -hmm. So he says you have to think about the weight. So, you know, he says if you're drawing something like a sparrow... You must, must never doubt 
when you see the image of it, mm -hmm. that the legs can't take the weight of the body. So, but, and before you think, okay, he's just talking about gravity and uh, things like that. No, no, he goes on to talk about sort of weight, strength, pressures, tensions. He talks about how you'll see, like, a, if a model has their arms crossed. He'll talk about how, uh, you know, certain parts stand in tension, uh, mm -hmm. stresses of muscle. He doesn't say this, but I would like to generalize. In this sense, I think he has to almost be like a, a, an anatomical painter, so I'm thinking of people like uh, Leonardo, um, and Michelangelo, George Stubbs. Mm -hmm. um, George Stubbs, funnily enough, academic painter. And uh, yeah, he was into um, cutting up horses. Oh. And he does some wonderful uh, uh, anatomical drawings of horses, um, slowly mm -hmm. picking them apart. Uh, and I don't think Matisse is quite on that level, but he, you have to actually have a clear eye for what's happening in front of you. And I would like to generalize it with, maybe it will even apply to other materials. So not just things like flesh and bone on a human body, but also wood, um, uh, stone, metals. Maybe you actually have to have some understanding of those kinds of, you know, the, the, the physical properties, almost like an engineer. That, that would actually help as well in terms of conveying uh, the physical properties, because he's all about physical properties. Um, and so it begins with things like size and shape, but then also, you know, muscular fibers, etc. Um, and he gives tips on how to try to do this. Mm -hmm. So with a model, he says, okay, first of all, you know, use, you know, look at them and then try to picture it in your memory. So somehow there's a, a relationship between memory and, and your hand. But then also he says, if you've got a model in front of you, why don't you assume that position? Mm -hmm. And you feel where your weight is being distributed. And so he's got these fantastic little techniques uh, that he offers. Uh, uh, and I thought, what a wonderful way. I, you know, okay, you can't be a bird and so try to do that. But mm -hmm. if it's a physical bit, maybe you can do that. And again, it's these analogies. He's all for these analogies. So maybe just like it is for a human in one sense, maybe for a different animal or maybe even for a tree in another. Um, and so I think that you, you, when you read these notes, you do get not only a general theory, um, but also a technical uh, you get these technical tips, which are really wonderful. And so, yeah, maybe, maybe that's an interesting point to, to generalize, that he, he is dedicated to a certain kind of anatomy, but not a deep theoretical one. He doesn't believe in, like, a Vitruvian man. There are no ideal dimensions. Mm -hmm. There is no, you know, this is how the internal organs look, and that works for everyone. He doesn't think that. He says, actually, you know, he gives an example. You have to look at a model um, with no preconceived opinions. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you, you, ideally you should see them and before you even start realize, oh, they have maybe slightly wider shoulders or something like that. Or, you know, maybe their left foot is slightly longer than their right. And so all of that you will want to imbue. These are all the essential features. Well, right. And that's, that's, that's what he's interested in. So that's why he yeah. wouldn't be interested in the kind of uh, anatomism of, yeah. of other, other paintings. Also... It, he he's not painting with the drawing with the kind of detail required for you to even see any of it. No. Um, but the weight does matter, mm. right? The the tension in the body and the muscles or lack thereof is important. Mm. So that you can see even in a very sketched line drawing, which is interesting. Yeah. And that he knows. Um, and to capture those essential characteristics of the model carefully, um, he asks his students to exaggerate 
but only to the character of the own, of the model, right? To exaggerate yes. only to fully capture the character of the model as opposed to um, just exaggerating wildly and without unity, kind of, sort of in, in a way that would push the artwork beyond the bounds of unity and harmony that, that he does strive. Um, yeah, it's fascinating because... I mean, he thinks that through exaggeration yeah. comes essence, you know? yeah. Uh, and I think that there's a, a, a. This is one of the neat points that relates uh, what he's trying with the essential features, the essential physical features, with this poetic imagination. Um, so, um, you know, he wants to capture these geometric shapes, but then also capture things like whether your model is young or old. But then mm-hmm. he starts to go further. You know, maybe you need to capture them. You know, you're drawing a model, say. You're not just drawing, you know, some flesh, some skin, some bones, etc. But you're drawing a person. Mm-hmm. And somehow you need to capture that. If you're drawing a flower, say, you're not just drawing a stem that's made of cells. But you're, you're, you're drawing something that would react to certain stimuli that is alive. It has... A, and that is something that you would also want to... It's almost as if, um, you know, you want to capture like a, a, some sort of soul mm-hmm. that uh, you might not have as, as you know... It, it just, you know, uh, measurements, dimensions, and uh, geometric forms, even though that is the basis. I mean, it, it, it's funny, this, this almost seems like you could give someone the advice, um, you, you could give a, a caricature artist the same advice almost. Mm-hmm. The only thing would be to not remain bounded to the, uh, the, 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 that character of the model. Or, or to not have to do it in accordance with the character of the model, yeah. and they could just keep going. Um, but you know that is that is what a, a caricature artist is meant to do, right? You you yeah. highlight already slightly highlighted or sort of abnormal in the most statistical sense um, features of the person that you're drawing, right? Yeah. So Obama always has big ears, for yeah. example, things like that. Same as the now the now King Charles. Oh yeah, exactly. They always have a them. tiny weird little chin. So things like that, but. But there is, there is a boundary between essence and caricature Yeah. that Matisse obviously wants to be well within the essence side of it. But it is the same spectrum, which is, I think, funny. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a fascinating one. And uh, then he has a few other things to, to kind of move through drawing. Um, well, no, do you want to talk about the poetic imagination a little bit more? About... Sure. About what to, what to put in there? Because this is, I think this is where the exaggeration really kicks in. What you have to depict is, uh, is it's, it's something that impacts you. And so this is where, you know, is he copying nature? This is what talks about, you know, mm. this is specifically to do with how he thinks of nature and how he thinks of art and the role of the artist. He doesn't think that he should just sort of copy nature. But he thinks that he's picking something about the essential being of nature and then he is actually exhibiting it on a canvas, say, or on a sheet of paper. But he's actually going to imbue his image with a particular kind of feeling of what he's looking at, how it makes him feel, and how it, how it, uh, how it brings uh, that apart. And so I think the person is very important because, you know, you have to depict a moral agent. Well, that's something that requires a viewer to see. Otherwise, you know, a, a brick or a camera won't actually de- see a moral agent when they look at a human being, say. Mm-hmm. And so I think that this is where you can mention things like uh, phrases such as egotistical sublime, 
which is Keats's term for you know how Wordsworth saw you know looking at the daffodils and mm-hmm. thinking that you know these are the people who's exhibiting um, the the human world, or Ruskin's pathetic fallacy is also another very closely related one, where although in his original te- uh, sense uh, he meant of it as a kind of um, emotional or, or feeling based falsehood mm-hmm. um, that doesn't actually exist within nature. It's something that you are adding to the thing. Now, I think that this is something that is close to uh, uh, close to Matisse. I think he is happy to, to actually do that. He's not just trying to take a photograph, as it were. He is actually trying, you know, his art is something a little bit more than that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it has it has some of his own feeling imbued within oh, it. Oh, in, not, not only a little, entirely. Yeah. I mean, the, the, as, as he says here, um, that, you know, you, you close your eyes and hold the vision... And then you do the work with your own sensibility. So mm. the own sensibility is important, and it seems like for him it is the means by which one gets to the essence that he wants, is through your own sensibility. Yeah, um, and it's fascinating. You'd think that those would stand in tension, right? You're trying well, they, to depict they, some they of they your do. own feeling, but then also there's something that this is the soul of whatever object I've I got think in they, front of me. I think me. they do stand in tension. We actually talked about that, I think, yeah. in the last episode. I mean, there, there is a a tension between expression and essence. Mm. Um, but it seems that for Matisse, one arrives at that essence through one's sensibility. Yes. And that's why I think that poetry must be kind of at the moment of perception. Mm. So that sensibility, that essence, that ability to capture the essence of something must be very much there from the start. I think that's very well put. Yeah. That's nice. Synced, yeah. But yeah, it, 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 I mean, he continues with lots of these little one-liners that Sarah Stein gets down, you know, that, um, you know, how to, again, think about drawing, okay, don't, what, what have you got there if you're looking at an arm, say? You're not just looking at sort of like a bicep and where it uh, meets, um, say, uh, the, the forearm. No, 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 you've got a joint in the middle, and the mm-hmm. joint is not just the intersection of these two bits. It's actually an essential, intrinsic part mm. of the arm as well. And so, you know, you, you can see these wonderful ways of how he's breaking down the body. Um, uh, but then, you know, you can then um, uh, generalize that into, into nature. Um, and, uh, and, yeah, so I, I do recommend all of those things, you know, to read it in detail. And then the one thing is, I guess, unity. He prioritizes unity above all. And you can see that mm-hmm. in the lines like, you know, that the, the, these joints are as important. And he's very critical about what he calls, you know, these decadent periods where they will actually uh, focus on one, uh, one section or one detail mm-hmm. versus another, uh, versus the whole thing. He actually is quite classical in this. Or rather, he thinks that the classical period is the same as what he's trying to do, which is that the unity, even though he is exaggerating, he's happy, he freely admits it. Mm-hmm. He says that somehow this again works for the unity. Yeah, and I think I think now it's interesting. I think we we can slowly move through some of the yeah. other the other um, mediums that he talks about yeah. and a little bit of their contrasts. Mm-hmm. So to your question of whether he considers drawing a full work of art, I think he does completely. I mean, Matisse has tons of drawings, mm. most of which are not preparatory, right? I mean, tons of drawings and lithographs and etchings and so on that that are, I think, final and. He seems to place completely different emphasis on each of the things. I mean, but is it at this time though, 1908? Because yeah, yeah, as I, I understand well, I mean, it, actually, his he he will actually in years to come. Although you know, we're looking at this in relation mm-hmm. to the fourth period, and and near uh, around that, 
Apparently later on, some of this he starts to sort of wander away from. Maybe he's a bit more formulaic later, I don't know. Maybe, but in, in either yeah. case, yes. um, for instance, here he says, one must always search for the desire of the line, mm. where it wishes to enter and where to die away. So for him, drawing is line drawing, really, mm. for Matisse. Yeah. And but then he also says that a line can't exist on its own. Yes, no, exactly. But, yeah. but the line is what creates the volume, right? So it's mm. not just one, but two in, in a concordance, right? Yeah. Um, th- so he talks about, yeah, for, so drawings are made up of lines, volumes, but the volumes are made up of lines. Um, whereas in sculpture, now we're in a different medium and painting, yes. we're in the realm of color for him. Mm. So I think one can think that he would conceive of them as independent art forms, mainly because they are made up of different stuff. You know, they're not stepping stones to something else, necessarily. Mm. They, they all kind of exist with their own dynamic. And it's interesting that when he... I, I think all of them carry forth. I mean, he does talk about constructions and so on. Um, and I guess the anatomy for a sculpture is the same anatomy as for a drawing. Mm. And he still talks about tension and weight. But in painting, for example, it does seem to be that like color is, color is the thing for painting. Yeah, I wonder. But this is what seems so different. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you know, unless you apply your your colors in dots, you know, as a pointer style, uh, or you opt for sort of squares, like in a, a kind of divisionist sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you are going to have lines. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's no way to get around that. Um, no, but they're not. But they're not apart from the dots, obviously. Yeah. yeah, but but they're also dabs. They're not always like long. No, they're not lines the way you have in a line drawing necessarily. No. Sometimes, I mean, there's a line, but yeah. Um, the the color for Matisse, I think, is what he emphasizes in this text, at least. Mm. Yes, it is. It's, it is interesting how he, he, you know, after all that detail about the, you know, in drawing. Mm. It then seems as well. I don't think he repudiates any of it. No. I, I, I totally agree. I don't think he repudiates any of it, but um, it, it, that's why I wonder whether he thinks of drawing as... Um, and to your point a, about unity, you know, he yes. has this, the one I mentioned, the last thing with drawing. Um, no lines can go wild. Every line must have its function. This one carries the torso up to the arm. Note how it does it. All the lines must close around a center. Otherwise, your drawing cannot exist as a unit. For these fleeing lines carry the attention away. They do not arrest it. Yes. Um, and yeah, he thinks the same about painting. I mean, he, he, there's a, an essentialism. Yeah, he's, he wants to depict these physical properties, um, um, but at every level. It's, it's very, very interesting. And then more so. And, and again, to return. So the lines must play in harmony and return as in music. Mm-hmm. You may flourish about an embroider but you must return to your theme to establish the unity essential to a work of art. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, it's, it's, it, is, it is wonderful. It is wonderful. He then even, we even have um, a little mention of a comparison with what Angra says. Mm-hmm. Uh, so <laughs> Angra, uh, Sarah notes down that Angra said, never in drawing the head omit the ear. Uh, and uh, and yeah, that's, that's responses. a wonderful, yeah. a, what, it's like, it's, like, it's what, what I like to call kind of like, pre-aristocratic uh, maxims <laughs> that are, are just completely bizarre and I think should always be quoted yeah. out of... Out of context. Out of context, yeah. Just yeah. Like, beware the beans. You know, I love it. 
<laughs> I mean, what could that? That was a pre-Socratic, uh, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, that's yeah. Parmenides. Oh, they're just yeah, great. I, I love really, these like totally yeah. out of context. Yeah. It could have said anything. Strange in quotes. The, in the yeah. head, never omit the eyebrows. Yeah. Exactly. Well, yeah. Yeah. Never when drawing the nose. Drawing, never. So I like saying never omit the ear. Yeah. Nice. Never omit the ear. Uh, but it's, it's wonderful how Matisse, uh, Sarah notes that Matisse says, "Well, I might not insist on this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, maybe do omit the ear." Well, so the the, um, the he editor helpfully helpfully oh, notes. Yeah that uh, this might be a moment uh, where Matisse gives... This, uh, this is the kind of academic drawing advice. I mean, no one is more academic than Ang. Um, it's great, though. It, so he's giving... The, it's the spirit of giving advice, so he does give advice like that, but he doesn't make it a hard and fast rule. No. So he says... But, but you know, if you, if you do omit yeah. the ear, clearly he means your painting will be worse. Yeah. <laughs> if you do... But then he says, oh, don't, if you are going to add the ear, because he thinks that the ear can actually add tremendous value to a head. Mm-hmm. It says, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you ever seen one of those heads without ears? No, terrible. 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 Uh, he says, you know, do it with more than just a dab. Yeah. So don't add token gestures. Yeah, uh, no. You know, it, if you're going either, to include gonna it, add the ear, do it Include properly. the ear. Yes. Yeah. I, I just love how random it is with the ear. It's it is. Fantastic. It could have added anything. Yeah. Um, so, so now, when we talk about sculpture, mm. um, here he does talk a lot more about weight, which he mentioned yes. before, but talks a lot about weight and how these things must be believable. Mm. Sort of, you know, is the neck holding the head? If not, you know, maybe the hand should be helping. I mean, it, and, and I think that's very true. Um, uh, like, Rodin is a perfect example of damn near perfect sculpture. I mean, of, oh. of, of a masterful control of mm. weight and of all of these things. And you do see all of these characters, like, heavy. I mean, they're heavy. You see how heavy they are when when they're meant to be heavy mm. or light when they're not. Um, yeah, so it's very interesting. But here we get to what I think could be Matisse's problem with academic painting at the time. Okay. Because it doesn't seem to be in the preparation. It's not in the school. Usually when we're taught about Impressionism and all these things, um, I guess modern vanguards and all of this, are, especially Impressionism, are presented as uh, the sort of breath air that art needed to leave the stultifying academy. Mm. So whilst there's some of that, people I think often take away that maybe the methods of the academy were bad and we should move away from them. But Matisse doesn't really seem to think so. I mean, maybe he doesn't like the hard and fast rules of the academy, but he still thinks you should learn to draw, and you should learn to draw classically, and only then depart in, in your own way. I mean, that there's, that there's great value in drawing and learning to make shapes the way that they make them. And I, I think a lot of that he yeah. gets from Gustave Moreau. Mm. Uh, because, you know, he... Gustave Moreau, wonderfully creative subjects and eventually we'll get around to symbolism uh, mm-hmm. and fascinating work there. But he's also encouraging uh, his pupils to explore, to experiment. Yeah. And so, you know... When but you with, this, at, with yeah. this foundation mm. of ability, that essentially having that ability to be able to paint that way frees you up completely because you can paint anything, but you can really paint anything. Yeah. Because if you, if you can't paint like that, and it is a tall order to paint like Moreau... Yes. Um, really tall, then, you know, you can be free of mind, but not of ability. I mean, you, you certainly can't, you know, paint whatever you want if you can't paint the way he did, sort mm. of, if you don't have that skill. 
No, absolutely. That the academy did teach. So he says here, the model must not be made to agree with a preconceived theory or effect. It must impress you, awaken in you an emotion which in turn you seek to express. You must forget all your theories, all your ideas before the subject. What part of these is really your own will be expressed in your expression of the emotion awakened in you by the subject. Mm. So it's again him trying to, well, his belief that one must imbue the subject with one's own subject. Mm. And here he's talking about a model for sculpture. Yeah. But if we extend this a bit to maybe subject, um, that a lot of this academic painting are like neoclassical, like um, are, are neoclassical scenes or imagined neoclassical scenes. Like oh, there was one by this painter whose name I don't remember. So now I seem silly. But we talked but, about them last last time. But are you thinking like, uh, you know, uh, uh, I'm thinking of like from myths reason. Yeah, well, I'm thinking stories, of, yeah, I'm thinking narrative. of this, this theme of painting that was like, I don't know, reason escaping the well or something like that. Uh, do you remember that? There's this... So there, there are these, like, paintings where, uh, I don't know, reason is usually idealized as a beautiful woman mm-hmm. flying or crying or something like this. Mm-hmm. Um, and although they're beautifully made, there does seem to be something lacking in a lot of these paintings. Okay. The theme, the subject doesn't really seem to awaken in the artist something very interesting. Um, so I think that can be a, an interesting diagnosis of, of the problem as well, of, of subject, perhaps. That's interesting. Um, that's interesting. No, I've not thought about it like yeah. that. No. It, mm. Because it's not necessarily with the quality of the work. I yeah. Mean, the, the painting is usually pretty excellent. But the rigidity of it might have to do with it leaving the painter cold in a way that we can see. But see, I don't, at least at this point, I don't think Matisse is really going to be painting uh, or drawing images that are super, super symbolic. I don't think that he's got that. Even though you think... No, because I think it leaves him cold. Yeah. Even though we're going to see this, he's already made lots of pastoral scenes, and these are moments that... You know, he's he's not seeing these. It's not like Gauguin who's going out and you know, uh, uh, painting yeah. images from you know a very. But for example, Cezanne does do does do more classical themes, right? He would mm. he would he would have uh, like more classical or Grecian themes directly, and those do seem to work for him. Mm. He manages to to imbue them with his own sensibility. So anyway, so, that's, yeah, that's Cezanne my, even has my like thought. a Mary Magdalene. That's a, mm-hmm. a very odd image. Does it's... he have a George and the Dragon? I think he does. Do- oh, anyway. what? if he does, I want to see that. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, so it's it's very interesting then to think about you know what this essentialism will be, and he clearly, at least in the writing, it seems that he's he's very close to to nature and wants to depict images that are in front of him and their essence. But then in the actual work, which we're going to see in our next episode, mm-hmm. uh, he he must be painting images or drawing images uh, that might have some basis in reality, but the actual final product it's, mm-hmm. it's not actually you know there's, there's no scene that you could there's no place on this earth that you could go into with a uh, with a camera and take a photograph of it it's, it is actually an imagined scene mm-hmm. so I think that that's interesting that we don't get some of this here but maybe that's because these are students mm-hmm. 
So maybe he's saying, first of all, take a look at nature, and then we're slow. We're going to teach you the technique, and then we're going to teach you how to properly look and understand your objects, and then you can actually go off piece. Yeah, but he says he says uh, you are representing the model, not copying it. Yes, I think that's that's really important, and. And maybe um, then, maybe then, could to go back to what was your, his name, Gopul or something, mm-hmm. um, uh, from his, yes. the seventy-seven manual. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, then you can actually maybe uh, abstract or generalize. Maybe that's the step. Yeah, where maybe, you can maybe then. Perhaps, um, perhaps. Yeah, it's similar, but but it's mm. it's interesting. I, what I've what I've come away with um, from this is how how intentional Matisse's work is. Mm. How how much intention and how when you do see this beautiful life line drawing and you know you start to kind of fancifully dream away about the the butterfly like eyebrows he did too i mean the, the all of this really is in there which is really really wonderful yeah. to see yeah it's fascinating to think yeah. um there's there's two things that i would like us to uh finish up on mm-hmm. um and uh, the first of all is that what is he thinking about in color in terms of color? Like we discussed last week with notes of a painter, um, he's not just you know he, he, he's not just thinking about uh, typical color theories. Mm-hmm. So he's he's repudiating things like okay, well these are these are complementary colors. Here we've got split colors, we've got triads. He's not keen on any of that. He says you know no, you can have two mm-hmm. random shades. But they will have a unique kind of relationship, relationship. yes. And so it, it's not even as... Uh, uh, and the way that he says here, um, he says, construct by uh, relations of colors, close and distant, equivalents of the relations that you see upon the model. And uh, what's interesting is he goes on to explain this. And so I think this also will apply to the shapes. This is why the shapes will exaggerate mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, uh there can be no color relations between your your uh, what you're painting mm-hmm. and your picture. So, which first of all throws you off, but he goes on to, to elaborate. It is the relation between the colors in your picture which are the equivalent of the relation between the colors in your model or subject that must be considered. And that there is also your sensibility. Right? Mm. So your sensibility is in what you exaggerate in the model mm. and how you find that model's essence. But when you're painting, you have color to work with. And mm. that that's your sensibility. I mean, um, and that's why we see these, like, these wonderful Matisse paintings that we'll talk about in the next episode. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, and so I think that that's very important. Uh, mm-hmm. A lot of people might be just thinking, okay, he's just trying to do it. No, 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 no. Whatever equivalence, it's almost like the relationships he wants to capture those, and that somehow that conveys the essence. Mm-hmm. Um, you might just think, okay, that's a particular shade of blue out there. I'm going to use a particular shade of blue and that, in my image. It says, no, 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 it might be a totally different one. And you sure, see this I mean, in the they're, criticism. They're sort of, I don't know, creamy skinned or something. Yeah. You add, uh, you add um, different kinds of red, for example. Mm. Here, here, here's one. The black skirt and white underskirt find their equivalent in your scheme in ultramarine blue with dark cobalt violet as black and emerald green and white. Now, the model is pearly opalescent color all over. I should take vermilion and white for this lower thigh and for this calf, cooler but the same tone, garants and white. Garants is this great, like, red. Mm. Red, I looked it up. Um, Kind of like winey red. 
Um, for this prominence of the back of the forearm, cool but very bright, white tinged with emerald green, which you do not see as any particular color now yeah. that it is placed. But, but yeah, so it's, so it's there, interesting. Like, you know, yeah. You've got white there, he says in the background. I want white with emerald green. Yeah, so to change it and to add tones and everything. Yeah. Exactly, and I think that this is, uh, you know, this is probably the, you know, the effects of, uh, you know, his full experimentation. You know, all these, all this work that he's been doing with Duran, Vlamiket, you know, from essentially 1901 onwards, inspired by Van Gogh, and um, and you know, uh, playing about, you know, with these landscapes in couleur, experiment with the color and these distances. This is probably the result of that. Mm. And so this is what, these are his conclusions, this is what he's come to. For all that colour experimentation that he's had in 1904, 1905, 1906, by 1908, you know, we're actually seeing some of his final thoughts on, mm -hmm. on colour. At least at this point, he, of course, colour becomes everything to him. Mm -hmm. We're seeing it now. Colour is how you lead the unity in a painting. Uh, but yeah, uh, he has writings like that. That black is a color. Yeah, uh, not just a tone. Black not and white. A color. Is, no, it's yeah. a, it is its own color. Um, and uh, and so yeah, we we stress that um, this color and specifically this equivalence thing, uh, which is why we said you know, it's the key thing. You, mm -hmm. He describes all of his work with these analogies, but even in the painting, this is something to do with the essence. Um, but one line that would probably be throwaway mm -hmm. because it's not really something about technique but it's it seems to suggest something about why why you should paint what the purpose of a painting is and is there what, what, what is that line nature excites the imagination to representation but one must add to this the spirit of the landscape in order to help its pictorial quality mm -hmm. that that is a small couple of lines a small section but from that i i'm getting a sense that well why why are you going to paint a particular landscape mm -hmm. why does he choose that why does he choose a certain model why does he choose to, to pick something nature excites the imagination but then you, you have to add the spirit of a landscape that's got to help its pictorial quality it's almost as if whatever you've got in your drawings or your paintings or sculpture that there has to be a worthiness mm -hmm. of aesthetic representation. True. So it's it's throwaway, easy to uh, to miss. But I thought that you know we're always keen to, to pick out maybe these uh, you know little gems that might fall away. Yeah, I think but that's an interesting it's, point. It's similar to him wanting to find a little exaggeration of the figure to find mm -hmm. sensibility and to see something particularly beautiful and then want to to convey it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and so, yeah, just that nature excites the imagination yeah. of the representation. Why, why do you paint, Matisse? Why do you paint Henri? Oh, it excites the imagination. Exactly. Yeah. It's not quite as beautiful as Derain's reason, but... Um, no, not no. Quite. it's going to be difficult to top that one. Yes. Um, only when we do that special episode on Schiller I want to do will, oh. we, will we maybe get close. Um, but no, this, this is wonderful. He, the, the one last thing I do mm. want to mention... Um, he seems to think of still lives as a slightly different exercise. Yes. Still lives, uh, he says, painting consists in translating the relations of the object of the subject by an understanding of the different qualities of colors and their interrelations. Mm. I don't really know what that means exactly, but um, I think he, he is okay with a, a slightly greater correspondence to what you're seeing. Um, and then maybe we start getting into composition a bit more and color maybe 
is important and interrelated, but might not be as free as in, uh, in drawing models, in painting models. Yeah, it's, it's almost as if it's less the, the particular nature of the things represented mm -hmm. as opposed to the relationships of the things represented. That, that's mm -hmm. the more interesting thing. It's almost yeah. like um, a form over substance uh, or like, um, uh, uh, you know, it's, it's entirely its relations rather than the actual discrete particular things that are in it. It's, it which is a strange one. I didn't, I didn't, yeah, I, did, I, didn't fully, I didn't fully understand that, but it would be interesting to keep in the back of our minds through future episodes, still mm. lives and what they do and mm. why artists return to them. Yes. There's obviously the ease of, well, you know, it doesn't move and I don't have mm. to pay it. Um, yes. To sit there. I told you to stop moving. <laughs> yeah, exactly. You, know, <laughs> you weren't know. like that. Can I use the bathroom? No. No, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> I'm hungry. No, you stay there. No, you're not. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, so you don't have to do any of that. And the problems of lighting with landscapes, oh, obviously. Yeah. Hence, you know, impressionist. Okay, I'm going to do it as quickly as possible. No, yeah. no, no. It's still on the table. Although I suppose you've got the issues of the light. decaying fruit. Typically fruit, you know, that's why. Fruit decays, light, yeah. all of this. But, um, yeah, still lives are... Are interesting for that reason, but mm. but I suspect other ones as well. There's, it's, a, it's a strong well, genre of painting. Yes, yeah. and I mean, there's always that question of you know, does it have a touch of memento mori or vanitas? Or that somehow, even if there are no mm -hmm. no living beings in it, or even no mortal things, that there's always a touch of or the is mortality. It like John Berger says, just a way for uh, rich people to show all the things they usually would eat, but they're not eating today. Yeah, yeah. See all those oysters and lobsters? Yes, <laughs> that's that's exactly what we'd be having. Well, one day we'll get onto ways yeah. of seeing. <laughs> but yeah, so thank you so much for listening. In our next episode, we'll be uh, it'll be a shorter one that just looks at some of his paintings and materials. We'll see yes. how uh, how uh, these notes and uh, notes of a painter in the general fall period influenced his painting and what, how we look at it. Thank you very much. <laughs>